in the beginning, God. Not us, not any object that we can see with our eyes, but God. He was before the beginning. And if you know anything else that happens in Genesis, that what comes next is truly something to journey through. That's why science continues to search for understanding how something so incredible could be before our eyes when you look at how the orchestration of our universe and even the harmony of how this world functions. In the beginning, God. And after several days of God's breath creating all that you and I can see, an incredible moment happens when he creates a creature that is made after his own image. He called that creature man. Adam was the first. Then, because Adam was lonely and, and it wasn't good for him to be that way, God said, I'm going to give you a partner, a woman. And the two of them enjoyed the full pleasure of being in the presence of God without shame, without hindrance, without harm, without fear. They knew the laughter of God, how it actually sounded. They knew the voice of God and all of its various inflections. They enjoyed him like no other human beings have. But then part of the angels, Satan, who was one of the lead angels of heaven, wasn't satisfied with a secondary role. And he chose to rebel, claiming for himself a glory that was not for him, but for God alone. And with him, a third of the angelic realm joined in that rebellion. We don't know much about what happened in that rebellion. We just know what happened as spoken through the word. But then Satan wasn't satisfied that he was able to cause a third of the angelic armies to join him in this rebellion. He decided to go after those that were made after the image of God. Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan, when Satan said, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat of this tree is because he knows you'll know what he knows, and you'll become like him in all the ways you're not right now. He appealed to their pride. In that moment, they did not consider the pleasures that they had in interacting with God and the freedom they had. They just liked the fact that there was a possibility that maybe they could become just like God. 
in every sense of the word. And so perhaps this creature is right. And as we discover in Genesis, they fell into that temptation and disobeyed God, thus committing the first sin. At that moment, all of heaven shuddered, and the earth never was the same. All the perfection that had happened in that creation was destroyed in one moment. That harmony left, and decay set in. Part of that decay is the character of mankind. From that point on, every human being that came into existence was born with a corrupt nature. A nature that would want to defy God and declare yourself as the most important thing on this earth. We operate selfishly. We operate with a vision that's not to the benefit of others. We justify when it's not as serious of a violation as others. Commending ourselves as thinking we're better than another. The sins come in various forms and various kinds. But they come. God had an opportunity to start over. I mean, imagine... In that moment when Adam and Eve made that decision, God knew the full implications of everything that was going to happen after their decision. He knew the suffering that was going to come. He knew the evil that was going to come. You and I have history to tell us all of that. He could see it from afar. God had a choice. He could start over, create a new Adam and Eve, and trust that they would not make the same violation. So God shows up. They begin to quiver. They hide. What will God do? Will he destroy them? But instead, God clothed them. God gave them instructions. God told them things have now changed because of their mistake. There will be consequences for their decision. And God said, death is now going to come. You see, God had a choice. He loved them, but God is also holy, and God is also just. His justice demanded that this sin that they've committed must be punished, and all sins going forward must be punished, and death was not intended for humanity. But by the invitation of their own sin, death has now come, and therefore is the payment and the justification for the sin, it literally establishes it's paid for, your death. But unfortunately, 
That death isn't just a physical death. It continues. You see, at that moment, now God has another choice. Do I let this sin just stand just with death? And it continues no, no longer. There's no life beyond. Or do I create an opportunity for something beyond that death? So then God created two places. Heaven for those who will respond to any of the work that he might provide. And a place called hell for those who would rebel and reject him just like the angels. Can you imagine the pain and heartache as God had to now use his breath to not create something that was as beautiful as he created on this earth, but rather something horrific like hell? He spoke and it came into existence. The descriptions of the various writers throughout the, the biblical text describes it as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place of darkness, a place of horror. There are actually more references in the scriptures about the description of hell than there are of the description of heaven. So, in this moment, God is now confronting Adam and Eve. He closed them. He forecasts death has now come. So the question is, does he ultimately destroy them? And in Genesis 3, verse 15, God drops the first hint that something is going to come and undo the damage done. He says there will become a man born of a woman who will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And then what you discover, if you've ever read this Bible from cover to cover, is that the entire Old Testament, so those books that, that lead into the Gospels, the story of Jesus, is the story by how God is bringing about this person that is going to come and crush the head of the snake. But until then, different things are planted to foreshadow what the ultimate sacrifice will be. That this coming Christ, this coming Messiah that will crush the head of the serpent will do so through some form of sacrifice. We get the foreshadowing through the sacrifices of lambs that are described throughout the Old Testament. A regular Sacrifice of perfect lambs were given as a spreading, a spilt blood to cover over our sins. But these sacrifices were temporary, they only covered temporarily. But yet they pointed to something coming later. And time keeps coming. And more information starts coming in to forecast what this Messiah will look like. This Christ. As spoken last week, 
the prophets that were writing these things down as God was giving them understanding, longed to understand the time and the circumstances by how this will happen. But what was clear through all the Old Testament is that you and I, as soon as we took breath here on this earth, were born with a nature of sin. And as a result, we stand condemned already. But it is also true that at the very moment we were born, there was going to be opportunity for redemption that was going to come through an ultimate sacrifice of a lamb that was going to come later. In those prophets, it spoke of this Messiah coming through a virgin birth. So yes, born of a woman, just as said in Genesis 3, but born of the seed of God, therefore not the seed of man. He was born without sin. Jesus lived his life without sin, providing a, an example and model of life that was intended for Adam and Eve in the very beginning. But we didn't get to write that storyline of how that would look because of their failure. But Jesus, the second Adam, rewrites the story. Now, death that comes to each of us here because of our sin, Jesus was not owed that death. He did not earn anything for that. Yet, we know from our storyline, looking back, that he died and on the third day came back to life. Thus rewriting the story of mankind. Because now a human lamb, the perfect lamb, one who had not committed sin, had submitted himself to the death on the cross, letting his body be broken open by, so the blood pours out. And that blood now provides a once and for all covering of sin for those who have faith to believe that Jesus is enough. That Jesus is the one way towards reconciliation between us and the creator God. That same Jesus, after he resurrected from the dead and now has come to life so that we can have that same hope for life beyond our death, he went into heaven saying, I will come back. And that is what we hope for. Peter speaks to that hope. He says that when we go through the tough times, the difficult times here on this life, here in this life, he says there is a hope that is beyond the current suffering that we look towards. Keep in mind, Peter's name means rock, and that name was given to him right after the resurrection or right before the, uh, the death and resurrection, and told, you are going to be a rock by which the church will find leadership and steadfast hope. But I am the ultimate rock, Jesus said. So Peter, being the smaller rock, if you will, then becomes this rock in the midst of a suffering church by which people are looking to lead us through this. 
Peter, after all the humbling experiences between him and Jesus, now is writing a letter to a church that is suffering because of the name of Jesus Christ, not because of just normal life. You and I, we suffer because life brings suffering and hardship. But this church that he's writing to was suffering because they chose to have faith in Jesus Christ. And he says to them, being somebody they're looking for, for an inspiring message, and he says, there is hope that will carry us through this suffering. And that hope is Jesus is coming. He's coming back, and we will get to join him. And then at this point, we also get to anticipate the eternal glory of living with him for all of eternity post our death. So Jesus becomes the means by which we can be led through the suffering, not away from it. There are, it is perfectly appropriate to ask God to remove the suffering in our lives. And there are times when he does through miraculous intervention. But it is also true that God uses suffering to sharpen us, to build us up and to strengthen us. And then he leads us through it and we have our eyes fixed for that which is beyond and then ultimately, Peter points to salvation is what is accomplished by an act of grace upon us by Jesus Christ alone. We did not deserve his death and resurrection on our behalf. He gives it to us freely, and it's therefore grace. And then he says we become saved when by faith we accept him as enough. Therein, what I just said is the storyline of the entire Word of God. 66 books, beginning in Genesis, with the words I said, in the beginning, God. And it concludes with, with saying that Jesus has come and he's received his church, and the angels declare glory to him. And the wise person is the one who acknowledges his coming and waits for it. That is the first and the last chapter. Peter writes this to the church so that we can live lives that bring glory to him. And so we're going to go into the text today. We're, we're studying this book of Peter, 1 Peter, and then we'll ultimately go into 2 Peter. But he is preparing the church for being strong in the midst of any storm they might face. And then giving them direction by how they can live daily. So if you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming up right now. And we'll be glad to provide you a Bible by which you can read and follow along. And 1 Peter, I do not have the page number. It's towards the end of the Bible and just ahead of 2 Peter. So over the last four weeks, we focused on the first 12 verses of this, of this letter written by Peter to the church. In these verses, he speaks again as I just kind of accounted for the hope that, is, that comes in Christ that brings us through the suffering and will ultimately uh, expose the glory of Jesus at the point where our salvation is ultimately revealed when he comes back. Those are the glories yet to come and that which we anticipate. Jesus begin, I mean, Peter begins these letters giving all these statements of fact. But then in verse 13, 
he shifts in what he communicates. Verse 13 says, Therefore, after having written all that he just wrote about this hope that will carry us through the suffering, about a grace that will come through the suffering Messiah, that salvation then comes to those of us whose faith is in that Messiah. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So 12 verses of statement, and now you have this therefore. Now, if you recall, some pastors have mentioned this, but it, I, I ultimately heard it first in a grammar class. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask, you, ask yourself, what's it there for? So here we go. Why is therefore right here? Because prior to that, he states, you are struggling through difficult things. Life is throwing lots of curveballs at you. Some of it is even because you've chosen to follow after God. And so he gives all these truths about the glory that is yet to come. To have our eyes focused beyond that which is in the present. But after making all these statements to, to define the hope and the glory that is to come. And to acknowledge their salvation. He says, therefore in light of that. In light of this great salvation that gives us hope. We must. We must. Therefore... In light of what I just said, we must. So it begins with, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on this grace we just spoke about to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So verses 3 to 12 were written in the indicative mood, taking you back to grammar class for a moment. It's a, make, it's a making of a statement of fact. So, fact, there is a hope. Fact, it is beyond your current trials. Fact, that hope is found in Jesus Christ. Fact, he did that, he created that hope by his own suffering. Fact, it is a glory that is yet to come. Fact, it's because you have salvation that you can hope in it. Period. Therefore, in light of this great salvation, so that indicative mood, that making of a statement, he now transitions into the imperative mood, the, 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 com the, the command side of it. So in light of what he's just said, now I'm going to give you some direction, some things to apply going forward. What I love about this pattern is that you'll find that this is true throughout Scripture. So this is not one to lose. Truth must inform and guide what we do in our lives. Truth must inform and guide what we do in life. It is not wise to just go to the playing field and begin playing the game if you don't know the rules. It is not wise to go to the playing field and begin playing the game when you've not even practiced how to play the game. Being coached, being taught, there are truths 
that must be known about life in order to live life well. So Peter begins by laying out the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ that is caught up in the term gospel. Gospel being the good news that has come to mankind. Because mankind, as stated in Genesis, made the decision to defy God and to rebel against God, forever was condemned to die. And has eternal, eternal destination of a place called hell that nobody would want to go to. But those who rebel against God and deny his opportunity and bridge that comes in the gospel, that is their place of end. That's the truth. But now, how do we guide? What's the information we can use from that to guide what we do in life? And I believe what he gives in these next couple of verses, 13 to 16, is literally a roadmap to how to glorify Jesus in the way we live. All right, so this isn't meant to be formulaic, but it, because that's not how the Holy Spirit works. But this is the literal laying out. In light of the truth of the gospel in a person's life, we then therefore need to act upon that. So knowing the truth, having received the truth by faith, we now have the opportunity to live it out to the glory of God. He begins with this first phrase. So after saying, therefore, he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober. With minds that are fully alert, I mean, are alert and fully sober. Now, in this meaning that we are called to pre be prepared to act. So the first step of a roadmap, if you will, to glorifying Jesus is being mentally prepared to act. So having our minds fully alert. Now, some of the translations of the Bibles you guys are using are using different phrases here. And I think this will help even give us fuller understanding to this statement. When he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. Okay, so beginning with ESB, the English Standard Version, and the New American Standard Bible, the NASB. They use the phrase, prepared for action. So, if you will, the first step in, in learning to glorify God with the way you live out your life is being prepared for action. Being alert, as NIV says. King James Version. Now get this. This one's really strange. King James Version says this. So your minds are to be girded up with the loins of your mind. I, I, I'm sorry. If I hadn't done the study this last week, I, I read that and I'm just like, that is so strange. Gird up the loins of your mind. So then when you go into the original Greek, which, uh, which we have in being able to bring the English text out of it, that's literally what it says. It says, we're called to gird up the loins of our minds. Now, what does that mean? What do our loins have to do with the mind? Well, that's a phrase. The, the girding up of the loins was a phrase that would have been understood in that day. You see, at that time, the normal garments 
that men would have worn, now I'm talking about men, they would, they would have been long. They would have been at least to the middle of the calf, if not all the way down to the feet. And so when you were told, gird up the loins of your garment, it was to take the end of your garment up front and tuck it up underneath your belt so that you are prepared to run. So when soldiers were being ready, like if they were saying, be ready at any point, you might have to take up your sword, the men would gird up the loins of their garments and put it up into their belt so that they could move swiftly at the moment of calling. Could you imagine it being told to run and you hadn't girded up the loins of your garment? I mean, just humor me for a moment. <laughs> Think of a man wearing a long dress and being told, run the 40-yard dash. That is a funny sight to even think about. Because they would be like running with their steps being impeded by the, the, the length of their garments. And, and so they, of course, would not be able to run well. So if there was a challenge between two men, let's go on a race. Let's race each other. Guess what the first thing they're going to do? They're going to stare each other down. They're going to pick up the bottom of the thing. They're going to tuck it under their belt. They're going to puff up their chest and say, I got you. And they're going to run. But they're not going to run until they've done that. Because they are being prepared for the moment where they can just take off. The same thing is being stated here in this text. That when Jesus has done all this in your life, that he has brought grace to your life, he has saved you from the penalties of the sins have afforded you, then you then have this hope. And as a result, Peter says, then you must be prepared for action. God didn't just save you so that you can sit on your keister and hear a good sermon, assuming you're liking this. That's not the, the intent of our faith. It is meant that because of what Jesus has done in our lives, we are called to action. So therefore, get your minds ready for it. So, step one. Know that after you have received the grace from God and the salvation of your soul, and you now have your hope built upon him, be prepared to act. Secondly, he says this term, fully sober. Now, in the NIV, it says fully sober. ESV, it says sober-minded. And the NASB, sober in spirit, which is the literal translation. Sober in spirit. In other words, not controlled by something else. We use the term sober as being free from the influence of alcohol or drugs. Something else that can, might control you. So coming sober, it means that you are clear-minded. You can actually hear. You can, make, you can process well. You basically, if your mind is prepared for action, then if you're fully sober, you can think clearly for that action. But if you add the term sober in spirit, then what the text is saying is that you're called to be clear-minded so that you can be led by the Spirit. So we're called to be prepared for action. We're to gird up the loins of our garments, ready to run at any moment when the Spirit says, 
go. Because we're to live a life filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So we're called to be led by the Spirit of God in us, not controlled by something outside of us. So therefore, being prepared to act, having our minds alert, ready for action, and then submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit when he says, go. Then at the end of verse 13, after saying, you know, have your minds be alert and fully sober, he says, set your hope on the grace to come when Jesus comes back and reveals his glory. Whoa. So he says, our eyes then need to be fixed. So if we're prepared for action and we are then supposed to be led by the Spirit, our readiness is going to be informed and inspired by anticipating the return of Christ. We don't talk about this a whole lot. And that might be unwise. Because what Peter says here is that we are literally to live each day with the anticipation that Christ could come now. He could come today. Somebody informed me after first service that a woman just died that was very close to the Billy Graham family. And she began each day praying to the Lord, maybe today. Maybe today. You see, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks to this idea that our hope is actually established by preparing for the possibility that, yes, Christ could come today. The challenge was that the Thessalonians stopped living because they were so sure he would come today, and that's not the intent. What Christ is asking for is that I can come, and I, and I am going to come, and it may be today, so therefore live like it could be today. One commentary that's written by Warren Wearsby says this, Christians should live in the future tense. Their present actions and decisions are governed by this future hope, living with the expectation of seeing Jesus. Goes on to say this, a Christian who is looking for the glory of God has a greater motivation for present obedience than a Christian who ignores the Lord's return. Now I'm going to read that one again. A Christian who is looking forward to the glory of God has a greater motivation for present obedience than a Christian who simply ignores his return. The Christian who ignores the Lord's return lives today as, oh, I'm confident he's not coming today. So therefore, no sense of urgency, no sense of application that's affected by that possible return. But what if you genuinely believed today could be the day you see Jesus face to face? We don't have much to be able to pull from in the scriptures about that coming and what it'll look like. But it does describe that when he comes back, he'll be on it a white horse. His name will be written upon his thigh as the king of kings 
the Lamb of God. And his face will be so brilliant that it will be seen as a glory never seen before. It's all described in the book of Revelation, of which we sang earlier in Revelation 4. This glory that caused the elders in heaven to begin to sing the words that you saw up on the screen. And then in Revelation chapter 7, the church joins in mass from all tribes, every language of the earth. All those who by faith have accepted that Jesus is the way to reconciliation between them and God. They will join in a song before the Lamb of God. I cannot fathom what that day must look like. But what if that is later today? What would that change about your next few hours? What if you knew it was tomorrow? What would that change about the next day? I believe God chooses to not reveal the day or the hour because he knows we would live foolishly until a particular moment. And then make right in our final hours or days. So therefore, Peter says, have your minds prepared for action. Be ready to go so that when the Spirit says go, you go. And you do so with the inspiration and motivation knowing that Jesus could come today. One commentarian put it this way. It's like... The idea that when you are engaged, if you've ever been engaged before, that when you are engaged, whatever length of time that engagement was, us as pastors prefer that you have a six to nine month engagement that helps us do the premarital side of things and the counseling. When you choose a two month engagement, very difficult. That's just a little personal petition there. (laughs) We want to help people get ready for that special day. Give us some more time though. But on top of this, think about it. For the months From the moment of engagement, of placing that ring on the finger, to the point of the actual exchanging of rings on that mantle on the wedding day, all the months in between are lived out with the anticipation of that day. Everything you do is in mind of that day. Even going to work and saying, I only have 60 more days of work before that day. And so we just, it just affects everything. Our plans, our engagements are all in light of that day. It affects everything. We buy a house sometimes. We're making arrangements. It's all about that coming day. Guess what? In the description of Scripture about the return of Christ, it says he's coming to get his bride. So we are betrothed. The church is betrothed to a coming groom and his name is Jesus Christ. And therefore, our calling is to live out in anticipation of our wedding day when we will be able to be caught up with the coming of Jesus Christ upon the clouds. So Peter says, be prepared for action. Alert, ready to go, so that when the Spirit says go, you go. And then we prepare with motivation, and we have plenty of motivation to live it out with that prepared mind and willingness to obey the Spirit when we are anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Next, he says in verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. 
Basically, he says, why would you go back to a life when you did not know? Ignorance says, I, do not, I did not know what I was doing. But he says now, now that you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know how stupid of a life that was. So why would you go back to it? Don't conform to the old patterns. Conform to the pattern of Jesus. This is the exact same phrase that is used only twice in Scripture. It's here with Peter, and then Paul says it, the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 2, when he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, we were in ignorance before, but now... We're in the light of Christ. Why go back? So we have our minds prepared for action. We're ready to go when the Spirit says go. And then we are anticipating that Christ could come today. And then we live not according to an old model or old pattern, but according to the pattern that Jesus lived out. The intent that Adam and Eve were supposed to have in the beginning is now lived out by Jesus. So we align ourselves to that. And then he concludes with the statement that I think was kind of establishing a bar that seemed so hard to achieve when he says, not only should we leave this ignorant living behind, but we should now live holy. Verses 15 and 16 says, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Be holy like Jesus. He is our template for living. This understanding of holiness is like saying it is a loving conformity to God's commands and Jesus' example. Holiness being set apart for a special purpose. Treated with reverence like a holy sanctuary. We're to be dedicated to such a purpose. And we do so by aligning our lives to Jesus who was indeed holy. So we set our minds for action. We prepare for the leadership of the Spirit of God upon our lives. We anticipate that Jesus is coming back and we're committed to him as his, him being our groom. And then we leave behind this ignorant life we used to live and we live a life that is filled with hope that will bring us through the times of suffering. And then we get the opportunity to live a life that is conformed to the image of Jesus, to his glory, not our own. All of that is our pleasure to do because of our king, who is the final sacrifice on our behalf, the perfect lamb of God. It is our opportunity and pleasure to then participate in communion together, remembering that sacrifice of Jesus. So if you're going to help serve communion, would you please come forward at this time? Just as we had talked about the gospel at the beginning of this message, in the beginning, God, and the storyline of how God brings about that coverage of sin, and that by faith we receive that, that can be your pleasure. That can be your opportunity as a saved one 
by simply trusting in him now. If you came into this door not having a relationship with Jesus, you can right now begin that life and relationship. For all those who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are welcome to participate with us, whether or not this is your church home. All we ask is that you wait and we'll take of these elements together. So as Paul accounts in his book to the Corinthians, it says, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he held up some bread, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's take this now in remembrance of all that Jesus did in that body. Later at the same table, Jesus held up a cup and said, this cup will represent my blood, which is a new covenant. No longer are sacrificial lambs going to be necessary for the temporal covering of sin, but this blood will be a once and for all sacrifice. The covering of sins, past, present, future. Let's take this together. Jesus, thank you for the blood that covers a multitude of sins, mine included. And I just ask that you would reveal yourself to those who came into this room afresh and anew, that you are loving, you are filled with truth, and you desire to give us a life that is abundant and full and good but to give glory to you and to the Father. I also want to say thank you. It's with a grateful heart. I say thank you for the years of opportunity to worship you here in this room. To speak the truth of God from your word in this room to receive guidance for how to live a life to the glory of you, to participate in communion with brothers and sisters in Christ. We've done for years in this room. Many have come to know Jesus. They've given their lives to you here in this room. Some have even been baptized here in this room. Many aha moments happened in this room. Many points of conviction where we had to repent and go a different direction have happened here in this room. But I'm thankful that your spirit is not relegated to this room. That we have to worry or be concerned that the spirit of God would not go wherever our feet may take us. 
So we say thank you for the years with gratitude of what you've done here in this place. And we trust that you'll continue to build your church wherever our feet may take us. And yes, even to the auditorium that's nearby that we'll worship you in next week. But you are the object of worship. To you we are grateful and thankful. You are the great God. And we are the ones you called out of darkness so that we don't have to be ignorant any longer. We are thankful. Glory to you and to you alone, Father God. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing How Great Is Our God as conclusion for how God has worked in our hearts in this space? You can throw away your cups on the way out the door. <clears throat> if you'd like to pray with somebody, they will be underneath the cross and they'll be glad to pray with you. But this is a song of praise that goes with us no matter where our feet take us. Would you join? <clears throat>